0: Denise is a senior lecturer at the University of Canterbury in the College of Education, Health, and Human Development. Um, She's also the coordinator of the specialist teacher for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing training program. Since initially training as a primary school teacher and later a teacher for the deaf in the 80s, she's gained a wide range of experience both with deaf education and wider disability community. Denise has seen many changes throughout this time and strong believer in the fact that we can learn from the past to educate us for the future. She was recently awarded a Winston Churchill Fellowship to travel overseas to investigate whether co-enrollment environments could be a possible future for deaf education in New Zealand. So join me in welcoming Denise to the stage. love the last session. Don't you love the last session? I was a bit worried when it was like, oh, you've all gone shopping. <laughs> I just pop those? So thank you for that welcome. I'm not mic'd up, because I usually work with um, sign language interpreters, so I've been trained to uh, stay in one place. So um, I'm, it's not because I don't want to walk around, it's because I've been trained. So thank you for that welcome. Um, and I'm going to obviously talk about the fact that inclusion is a feeling and not a place. So, everyone wants to feel like they belong, right? Did we just talk about you? I think we might have. No, we didn't really. It was a very, very general conversation. Anybody else here sign? Because that's always a risk. <laughs> okay. So imagine coming to this conference and actually not feeling like you belong. Not actually being able to make those connections with, the, with your colleagues. Um, no doubt that would impact how you actually felt about what you were learning and how you were learning and how, you, how, you, how comfortable you felt in this environment. So this presentation focuses on how we can assist schools to become more inclusive communities. Um, and I, I think it's important that, that students are able to um, communicate and, and... Sorry, I'm just going to move these up a bit because I can't actually read my notes. <laughs> so, and, and feel like they truly belong. It's about developing confidence and self-belief, real friendships and engaging with each other. And because my background, as Brie mentioned, is deaf education, I'm going to actually use that lens to give us, um, I guess, a a cook's tour of how we can take, perhaps, what we've learned in deaf education and, and put it in the wider community. So we hear a lot about inclusive education. But what does it really mean to belong? We gave you a little bit of a taste of perhaps what it might be like, but imagine if we'd kept going all day, um, and you'd only been able to pick up a couple of signs, like this one. Anyone got an idea of what that might be? Those of you who know sign language, be quiet. (laughs) Come on. No. She asked me how I was feeling. A little bit nervous. yeah. So imagine if that had gone on for quite a while. You probably might have started to feel a little bit uncomfortable, tried to figure out what was going on. Um, And I think we need to remember that when we're talking about kids who are in our our classrooms. So one thing I haven't heard mentioned, or if it was, I might have been out of the room, is the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Hands up those of you who have heard of that okay article twenty four says what that every child has the right to be educated in the least well it doesn 't say least restrictive environment that 's the american thing at all, without um, they're able to be uh, and fully included at all levels of education so merely being present isn 't the same as belonging, and the inclusive education term is often used to mean physical placement in a mainstream classroom rather than a learner's full participation in school life So I've got a definition of inclusion here You can just have a read for yourself So that comes from the Wellbeing at School project which is a New Zealand thing because if you haven't figured out by now that's actually where I'm from so, <laughs> who figured that out? Yeah. Okay. So, well-being at school project. What this says is that inclusive practices are really about ensuring that all students have, uh, that they're actually welcome in the school. They feel like they belong, that they are respected, and we've heard so far Well, in fact, I'm the last speaker. So up until now, we've actually heard that that's actually been a mixed response and a mixed experience for for some of our children and young people. There have been positive responses and there have been negative responses. And I was thinking about Ian yesterday and, and him talking about how it felt for him at school being bullied and how what happened in the end was he got a friend. He had a friend, Stan. And to me, that was really powerful because Stan actually, well, he developed that genuine friendship as, I don't know how old he was, was he 15 or 16 or something? A a 15 or 16-year-old genuine friendship um, where he wasn't alone anymore, even though the person who became his friend, Stan, was quite different from him. So, feeling that you belong is really important. So, what do we need for school to be happy and a positive place? You have to keep pressing this button. I'll try again. I know I'm not the only one who's had to do this, because (laughs) someone else got control? Ah, there we go. Okay, so, the key elements To friendship. Might be a flat battery. Working in deaf education, it might be a flat battery. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. So there are a number of key elements, obviously. Friendship, really important. Peer acceptance. Being seen as capable, and somebody else mentioned that earlier today being valued, and actually having genuine reciprocal relationships. Think back to your time, uh, perhaps, at primary school, and you developed those first friendships, and what that actually felt like. How many of you still have some friends from primary school? Yeah, For some of us, it's longer than others. <laughs> but, but really, really, really important, those initial friendships. So students who have diverse needs obviously have the same expectations of developing and belonging as anybody else. The shared relationships and experiences is more than just sharing a space. So there was a, um, a researcher, I uh, can't think of his first name, Putnam, Robert Robert Putnam described two kinds of social capital because we've heard of social capital, right? So there are two kinds of social capital. The first one is uh, a bonding social capital and this is where we're with people who are like us um, and therefore we bond with them quite easily. The other is the bridging social capital which is where we're able to bond with people who are not like us So uh, people who are like us might be, um, say, the same age or the same gender or the same uh, race. It's also, you know, what it's like perhaps for um, deaf people who actually meet other deaf people. The bridging social capital is when people aren't like us, so deaf and hearing. We have some similarities, but we have definite differences. Both of these are important because we need both of them. Another theory that I think is particularly relevant in this uh, conversation was developed by um, a theorist, Allport, back in the 50s. And he talked about contact theory. And the, the hypothesis here was that the more contact you have with people who aren't like you, Uh, That prejudice will um, go down and that positive feelings would be enhanced so the more that you're together the the more this will happen however it actually isn't true (laughs) as much as we would like to think that if you put two groups together who are not alike they become more alike that only happens if there's actually a connection between the two groups and in this case you know, friendships that are actually long-lasting that have deep communication. So the ability to communicate with each other in a deep and meaningful way. <laughs> yep. okay. So what about the deaf and hard of hearing students? Because I said that was the lens I was going to use. Going back to the UNCRPD, This is what it says specifically about children who are deaf or deafblind. And the reason this is important is because it talks about the language and the mode of communication and that the environments must maximise the academic and social development. So let's look at what we've got here in Australia and New Zealand So this is what deaf education, actually before I do this, how many of you have deaf or hard of hearing students in your your classes or your schools? (laughs) Fabulous! Okay, so this is what it looks as a nation, okay, so in Australia over 80% of our deaf and hard of hearing students, or the vast majority, are in mainstream classes. What I discovered about Australia was it was really, really hard to find data about this. And I think it's because you have different states. Um, And the best that I could get was over 80%. Even though that uh, was 2004, I did find personal communication, which said over 80% in 2017. So I'm not quite sure what's happening there. And if someone else is able to enlighten me, that would be great. In New Zealand, of course, we're all under one. Ministry of Education, and therefore it's much easier for us to track our students. And over 95%, or around 95% of our deaf kids are in mainstream classes. So for ease of um, speed, when you hear me talk about deaf children or deaf learners, I'm actually referring to deaf and hard of hearing. Okay, So I'm not just referring to um, kids who are, who are profoundly deaf or belong to deaf culture. So, a typical experience for a deaf student is in a regular classroom, learning full time, either with or without the support of a teacher of the deaf, and I think you call them visiting teachers, correct? itinerant teachers of the deaf, I used to be an itinerant teacher of the deaf and then we became resource itinerant teachers of the deaf and the acronym for that is right odd so we now call them resource teachers of the deaf which is not even any better because that's an RTD anyway, I'll let that sink in <laughs> so <laughs> most children communicate in auditory uh, oral modes okay So what does inclusion look like for these uh, typical deaf kids? Well, it can mean withdrawal, so the pull-out model. You get your itinerant teacher or your visiting teacher comes in, takes the kid out, does whatever they do, and then brings them back to the classroom. That still happens. Um, It could be that they sit in the classroom with an interpreter or we call them communication education support workers, (laughs) CESW, Um, who basically interprets everything that's being said for, the, for uh, the child and then voices for what the child is signing. Or they can um, be using residual hearing, cochlear implants, FM systems, um, what else do we have, hearing aids. So with technology, they're, um, they're doing as, as well as they possibly can using that hearing. So it's taken for granted that our students in the mainstream will have continuous and easy access to language. Um, but basically, if you're a deaf child in a, in a mainstream classroom um, and you are struggling to hear, there's that virtual glass wall. So even though these kids may have very well-developed speech, um, it's quite different to actually have the the sound going in without real effort, Um, and Hauser, for those of you who perhaps are a bit familiar with deaf education, as the you know these these are the guys who write the textbooks, they say that a child with a cochlear implant hears about as well as a hard of hearing grandfather. So, cochlear implants are fabulous. Cochlear implants are amazing technology, but they do not make deaf children, hearing children. And I think if that's the only thing you take away today, I'll be happy. So if we go back to the idea of social capital that I talked about before, it's an interesting thing when you think about relationships and connections that these deaf learners have in the classroom with their hearing peers. Um, The more social capital these kids have, the greater trust, cooperation, information flow and reciprocity that they have. Okay, so how many of you have hard of hearing grandfathers? Or hard of hearing spouses? And I'm not talking about situational deafness. <laughs> yep. Yeah. so imagine, imagine your grandfather in a room, this is a pretty good room acoustically, And we're using a microphone. But imagine, I know at times we've had people asking questions, and I'm like over here thinking, I'm not getting that. And so what do I do? Switch off. And hope that the person up the front is going to repeat what they said, because I didn't get it. I don't have a hearing loss. Um, But it's, it's a good example. So go back to granddad, social situations, people talking, small groups, what often happens is that they will withdraw. Um, Maybe not physically, but it takes a lot of effort to figure out what people are saying. So the loss of information is something that we we really need to be thinking about in terms of, of how we make sure kids are included. So being there just isn't enough and it doesn't automatically result in social connections. There's was a researcher back in um, 2004 who coined the word solitaires to describe um, deaf individuals who uh, were the only deaf person in their class or in their school. Uh, and basically this was a way of conveying what it might be like to be the only one. Has anyone read those? If you haven't and you're interested, I'd strongly recommend it. Um, Very good research that uh, actually basically captures people's stories. Um, Yeah, Okay. So, research has shown that the flow of information um, between deaf and hearing schoolmates can be superficial. And when connections are made, the connections are often unidirectional so the teacher telling the child something or the uh, hearing child sitting next to the deaf child saying the teacher said turn to page 20 or we're going to the library or there's very little in the way of conversation back and forth tends to be one-on-one conversations rather than multi-group conversations and, and there's a couple of research studies that basically looked at the significant difference in interaction patterns between um, deaf children and hearing children. Less turn-taking, for example, um, because less time to respond. By the time you've figured out what's being said, they've moved on. Um, so need to need to be thinking about that. So genuine conversation isn't, isn't um, necessarily easily come by formal classroom settings, which we don't tend to have anymore, <laughs> with teacher-directed talk, was actually much easier for a lot of uh, deaf and hard-of-hearing kids, because the voice was coming from one direction. Uh, it was, you know, you might have had an FM mic or whatever, uh, so straight into the cochlear implant or the hearing aid. Much, much easier to follow what was being said. Group work, class discussions, not so much, Um and I think what we need to remember is that navigating the communication is often falls on the shoulders of our deaf and hard of hearing kids. So it's very hard to be an equal, where you're the one that's making most of the uh, accommodations. right, I'm just figuring out how much time I've got. Um, Okay. So those who uh, struggle to hear are very visual learners. And even though they may not use uh, visual language or sign language, they're still visual learners. So the more we can provide in the way of uh, visual cues, the better. I find it very hard to to not be using my hands constantly. So you'll see that I'm sort of hanging on to the lectern. Because as I say, usually I have an interpreter there and they're busy moving their hands and I have to behave myself. So um, who's worked with a sign language interpreter before? Do you know what I'm saying? You get told off if you start... Yeah. (laughs) Because it's visually confusing. Okay. So there's there's a really important thing that we need to do which is to build the social capital the bridging social capital and the bonding social capital and how do we do that? Um, Okay, well one of the first things that we have to do is uh, connect our deaf and hard of hearing kids together and how do we do that? This is a a photo um, and I am in the back there and my husband said, was it windy that day? Yes it was (laughs) I'm the one with the wing out the side, at the back. So this was an attempt to uh, do do some bridging building capital. So what this does is it allows kids to connect on a level with kids who are like them. But we don't actually want to go down the track of exclusion because we've come so far with inclusion. Um, and, and so this is um, in Dunedin, who's been to Dunedin in the... Yeah, probably on your way to Queenstown, right? Am I right? Yeah. Who, what? Ah, oh, did you go to uni there? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that later. Um, Otago University, great place. But um, the important thing is that if you bring kids together on a meaningful level, you can start having those conversations that are, are genuine and reciprocal. Um, and this actually is a photo of a group in Dunedin of kids who range in age from the age uh, five, I think, was the youngest um, little uh, wish in the front there with the thumbs up. Well, actually, yeah, he's five, right through to age fourteen. Now that's a huge spread, um, and conversation and communication with this group ranges from full-on sign language with no technology. Um, and therefore no residual hearing or input, through two fully oral kids. So you can just imagine like, what, what that's like when you're trying to, to teach this group. But for these kids, when they first got together, it was like, huh. Even though they didn't communicate in the same way, they actually, it was like, these kids are like me. You know, we've got different technology, we've got different ways of communicating, and that blew us away as teachers. Like, we expected them to bond, but we, what we didn't expect was for them to actually... You could see them physically relax. Because, looking at it, of course, the environment was set up. There were two teachers of the deaf, so we kind of knew what to do. Um, we had a New Zealand sign language um, tutor who's a deaf woman herself, and we could all communicate on whatever level those kids needed. Um, and the other thing was they didn't get away with anything because they weren't able to go, Well, oh, someone will tell me what's going to happen later. <laughs> and that really surprised me because a lot of these, these kids in particular seemed to be doing well in the mainstream. But what became obvious in this environment was that they were very reliant on their teacher aides or their teachers of the deaf or the kid next to them saying, the teacher said to turn to page 20. And suddenly they didn't have that. It was like, you guys have got to step up because you're you're just as much a part of this as anybody else. So was also a really important aspect about identity and belonging.